afternoon and welcome to the webinar titled Grief and Bereavement. This is the fourth webinar in the MJHS Interprofessional Webinar Series. I'm Dr. Alessandra Strada and I'm the Director of Integrative Medicine and Bereavement Services at the Institute for Innovation in Palliative Care at MJHS. And I'm very pleased to be with you today and have the opportunity to talk about this very important topic which is so relevant for all clinicians working in the palliative care and hospice setting. I have nothing to disclose and during this webinar we will first discuss some of the uh, current conceptualizations and theoretical models of grief and bereavement. We will review some of the most common grief reactions in the palliative care and hospice setting uh, with a focus on anticipatory grief and complicated grief. We will touch on the elements of assessment and differential diagnosis and we'll also review some of the evidence-based applications and interventions that can be utilized in the clinical setting to improve the quality of life of patients and families. So we said that this topic is very important for all of us and why is that? Well, if you think about it, grief is really, uh, for many patients and families, the common denominator across the continuum of illness from the moment of diagnosis, during treatment, during transitions of care, in end-of-life care, and in bereavement. So in order to really understand the patient and family's experience, we need to understand how they grieve, how they understand, conceptualize, experience, and express grief. Also, if you think about the eight domains of palliative care, you may recall that the third domain which is a psychological and psychiatric domain of care, really um, psychological and psychiatric really includes the uh, grief and bereavement care as one of the subdomains and describes several guidelines that can be used for best practices. We also know that grief reactions can be very intense and the manifestations can overlap with other disorders or other conditions such as depression. So it's especially important that clinicians, palliative care clinicians and hospice clinicians are able to differentiate between what is a normal grief reaction that needs to be supported and what is a complication of bereavement or a complicated grief reaction that needs to be addressed in a professional manner. And this will allow us to describe and to uh, formulate uh, treatment plans that are really integrative and can benefit patients and families. So I would just like to take a couple of moments to review definitions and key concepts and I realize that this is a review for many of you but I think it's important to spend just two minutes because in the grief and bereavement literature often terms are used interchangeably and this can create confusion for clinicians so just to define the terminology it all starts with the experience of loss and loss is really the core experience that we're talking about today. Loss is the state of being deprived of something or someone important. Uh, patients and families, as you know, experience several losses from the moment of diagnosis throughout the continuum of illness, as we said. Some of the losses are physical losses. Think about the loss of a body part during uh, surgery, after surgery, cancer surgery, for example. Or think about the disfigurement that certain surgeries, cancer-related surgeries, can cause, such in patients with uh, head and neck cancer, for example. Some losses are symbolic. Think about loss of identity, loss of role in the family, loss of status. 
So it's very important that in order to understand the patient and the family, we understand what kind of losses they have experienced and how they have made meanings of these losses. Um, when we talk about patients and families in team meetings, we often will use terms such as the patient is coping well, right, or the family is adjusting. And this is, well, this is true, of course, and this is certainly accurate. But the fact that the family and the patients are adjusting and coping well does not mean that underlying that adjustment, there is an agreement process, an ongoing grieving process that the patient and the family is really trying to manage. So we need to understand that there's this dialectical approach, grieving and, and adjusting and integrating. Grief is the term that we use to uh, indicate the psychological, physical, spiritual and cognitive manifestations, reactions really to a meaningful loss. Bereavement is also the term that we indicate, that we use to indicate the state of having lost uh, someone close to death. Mourning indicates the psychological process of integrating the pain of loss. And so this is an intra-psychic, intrapersonal uh, process of adjusting to the reality of the loss, to adjust to a world that is very different from the way it was before, and define also a new identity in light of the loss. Mourning is also used to indicate the outward manifestation of loss. And so we're talking about funerary practices and the way the community grieves together and make meaning of the, of, of the event. Anticipatory grief is also called preparatory grief in the literature. And it refers to the grief reaction that is really, um, that occurs before the death of the patient and results from the expectation of that death. In the literature, often there is an emphasis on caregivers and their own anticipatory grief. But we always need to remember that patients go through a very similar process in terms of adjusting to the worsening of illness. And of course, there are variables that affect their uh, grieving process, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. Complicated grief, also called uh, prolonged grief disorder, indicates a pathological grief reaction. This is a pathology and always needs to be addressed professionally. Um, Complicated grief indicates a situation where the mourning process, remember, the process of integrating the pain of loss, uh, becomes symbolically stuck. So the griever becomes unable to continue to integrate the loss. And so they're kind of stuck in that I'm experiencing severe distress from the loss. I just wanted to point out that the term complicated grief and prolonged grief disorders were um, developed by two separate research groups. However, the uh, criteria are very similar and they indicate a pathological grief reaction. That's why in the literature they're often used interchangeably. Disenfranchised grief is something that we all should be very familiar with, um, all of us clinicians, because um, it really describes a grief reaction that is not sanctioned by society. So where there isn't that societal permission or support to grief. Uh, let me give you an example in the broader context. Great um, miscarriages are generally uh, result and uh, uh, really don't necessarily receive uh, the attention that they should or loss of a pet, the death of a pet. So society tends not to really provide a lot of support for grievers in this situation. Certainly uh, things are changing, but this is generally what it's been until very recently. Think about the palliative care hospice setting. Uh, let me just give you an example of disenfranchised grief. We may have a family member who's been estranged from the patient uh, for many years. And now that the patient is approaching death, this estranged family member um, 
shows up and would like to be part of the circle of support, uh, but the patient may not be uh, willing to engage. Um, the family member may want to look for forgiveness and reconciliation. And as we know, these concepts are very complex at end of life. Sometimes reconciliation is possible. Sometimes it's not only possible, but it's not even desirable because of complex family dynamics that have been going on for a long time and cannot be addressed in a timely manner. So the griever who's been left out of the circle of support of the patient may feel that their grief is disenfranchised. They don't have enough support and they may not be able to reach out for further help. And I just wanted to mention chronic sorrow, which is a term, a grief reaction, that actually are caregivers who care for someone with Alzheimer's type disease or other degenerative uh, diseases can experience because every day brings an ongoing a series of progressive losses. And so the sorrow, the chronic, the grief becomes really chronic and kind of a way of being. So now that we've reviewed some of the um, key terms. I'd like to switch gears and talk a little bit about uh, current conceptualizations of grief and bereavement. The way we think about grief and bereavement today is quite different from uh, the way it was decades ago. And now we have the advantage of several uh, research studies and large population studies that have really uh, helped us understand uh, the nature, uh, the deeper nature of grief. But the early models of grief really focused on uh, the importance of grieving the right way and then moving on in a nutshell. It was believed, starting with Freud, and don't get alarmed, I'm not going to talk about Freud, but he was one of the first people who really indicated the importance of, uh, of the grieving process. He differentiated between mourning, a normal grief reaction, and melancholia, which is what nowadays we would call uh, clinical depression. But the idea was that there was a right way to grieve, and that way was to express a significant amount of uh, distress and sorrow and sadness for a long time. And then at the end of that process, of the very intense process of suffering, the griever would be able to withdraw energy from the image of the deceased and invest it. What we know now, also thanks to the, uh, the studies that I've mentioned that have really given us a much broader understanding, uh, fortunately what we know now is that grief is a very unique process. It's a common experience, but it's highly unique for each individual. There really isn't the right way to grieve. There isn't a right way or a wrong way to grieve. There may be pathological grief reaction, but that's a different story. So the uh, challenge for all of us clinicians is really to understand for each patient and family member what is their grieving style. Do they experience grief more as an emotion? Do they become sometimes overwhelmed with the pain of grief and do they uh, benefit from, from crying and from asking a lot of support and debriefing and talking about the loss versus other patients or caregivers who may experience grief more as a thought and in that way they move into action. They're a lot more uh, pragmatic in the way of grieving or kinesthetic. So they will ask you things like, what can I do? I need to do something. And through the doing, they actually process their grief. We also know that it's not necessary to um, disconnect or disinvest energy from the image of the deceased. In fact, recent models emphasize the importance of legacy and maintaining a symbolic relationship with the deceased because this can be very supportive uh, for uh, grievers. 
Uh, also, recent studies have highlighted the importance of the of resilience. And uh, so what we know now is that some grievers, uh, even though the loss can be very meaningful and very um, distressing, they don't necessarily experience or express strong affect. Rather, what they do is they're able to return to uh, a level of functioning that is acceptable to them relatively quickly. So they may be able to go back to work and engage in daily activities. And that reaction should not be pathologized. So strong affect is okay, not strong affect or ability to go back to a level of functioning relatively quickly is also okay and understandable. And what we know about uh, grief is really that it's a, it's a dual process, it fluctuates. So mood and affect really fluctuate for patients. There are ups and downs, moments of profound distress, um, distress and, and moments where the griever is able to engage, maybe for a few moments or a few hours, and then return to a more loss-oriented process. So now we're reviewing uh, normal grief. We're talking about normal grief. And I just wanted to briefly summarize uh, what are some of the normal manifestations of grief. Because in reality, we say grief is normal, but it does not feel normal to the griever who's experiencing it. There may be profound physical, emotional, spiritual manifestations. So think about your patients or caregivers who may be grieving. Think about shortness of breath, which is a common uh, reaction, physical manifestation for some grievers. Think about a patient with advanced lung cancer who already has shortness of breath, and now we have this superimposed grieving process, which may exacerbate the physical symptoms. Uh, body aches, dizziness, nausea, uh, panic attacks, severe anxiety, uh, physical numbness. In the psychological and cognitive domain, we can have a range of emotions from numbness to relief to guilt, and all of these emotions can be experienced actually almost at the same time, creating a tremendous amount of turmoil for the individual. Also, there can be disorganized thinking, and it's important that we remember this so that we can educate caregivers when they tell us, you know, my memory is going, I don't understand what's happening, I'm losing control, I read a page of a book, and then I can't remember, I don't know where I put things. So we need to normalize uh, the fact that attention and focus and concentration are also affected by grief. And there also may be a fleeting, and I really want to um, uh, underscore fleeting or transient uh, auditory hallucinations or visual hallucinations and perceptual disturbances. And this can happen, let me give you a quick example. If a caregiver has witnessed um, a loved one on the hospice, for example, in palliative care, in the palliative care setting, um, experiencing severe uh, distress and poorly managed pain, or poorly managed uh, delirium agitation at the end of life, or poorly managed dyspnea, they may actually keep uh, hearing the loved one calling out in pain. And this could be part of really of their bereavement process. In terms of the spiritual manifestations of grief, well, we know that um, a spiritual and religious affiliation can be very protective for many individuals. However, during the grieving process, some individuals may not feel that supported, and they may develop conflicts in faith belief. Uh, they may develop a loss of meaning, loss of meaning and purpose, existential spiritual distress, and all these issues have to be addressed by a spiritual care professional. And we have to be alert and, and really be aware that this can happen. So let's switch gears now and refocus um, on anticipatory grief. We're talking about anticipatory grief, also called preparatory impatience.
Uh, Kubler-Ross described it really eloquently as the grief that terminally ill patient has to undergo to prepare himself and herself, of course, for his final separation from this world. So anticipatory grief, preparatory grief, really indicates the process of adjusting to uh, imminent death or worsening of illness. And of course, we need to understand that um, the awareness of anticipatory grief and the processing of anticipatory grief is modulated by many variables, cultural, personal, uh, family dynamics. Awareness of prognosis is really a significant one. So it's not just a, a direct process, it is modulated and affected by all of these variables. Like I said, it is not pathology, but it can become unmanageable. It is different from depression, and we will review that in a moment. However, let's remember that in a clinical setting, things are not always as easily either this or that. So uh, grief and depression can be comorbid. It's important to remember that. And just to summarize the core difference between anticipatory grief and depression, or the core experience of anticipatory grief, is that really it is a fluctuating process where patients may feel able to engage one moment and completely uh, distress the next. Anticipatory grief in caregivers, I'm talking now about family caregivers and all of those people who rally around the patient and are very involved in the patient care. Uh, anticipatory grief can, is normal, but can become unmanageable and thus it requires ongoing monitoring. Certainly there are cultural variables that we need to be aware of and we need to keep that in mind because in certain cultures it is very important to grieve, to express a lot of uh, distress, very strong affect, and to continue that after bereavement. However, if the caregiver for example, becomes unable to take medication or refuses to take important medication. We're talking about people with a physical illness or, the, or older uh, caregivers. It's really important that we uh, monitor that process and we may need to intervene and design a treatment plan for them as well um, because it may become really uh, dangerous if they're no longer able to take care of themselves or take medication that are really important. So we need to be aware of the cultural expressions of grief. We need to take that into account, uh, normalizing when possible, supporting, but always keeping our assessment head on to monitor for distress that becomes unmanageable. So let's touch on um, an assessment uh, uh, component here. And let's discuss briefly the differentiation, the main differences between preparatory or um, anticipatory grief and clinical depression. Um, essentially, as I already mentioned, in a preparatory grief, mood fluctuates. And let's just review, mood is really what how the patient described their feeling versus affect, which is what you observe as a clinician. So they may have very low mood one moment, but then they retain some ability to engage with loved ones and family members. Uh, if they're in a facility, they may look forward to a visit of a particular friend or loved one. And then after the visit, they may feel exhausted or they may start grieving the fact that they will not be able to engage with loved ones for much longer, especially if the prognosis is very limited. So it's an up and down, it's a fluctuating process. And the sense of meaning may fluctuate as well. They may be able to plan uh, for a year from now, even though they have an awareness that uh, their prognosis can be very limited. Now in clinical depression, 
uh, mood is low most of the time, affect is generally flat, there's very little, if anything, that can cheer up uh, the patient or the caregiver experiencing it. There is in patients a withdrawal from families and, uh, and friends, uh, but let me just note that this kind of withdrawal needs to be differentiated from the normal and expected and natural withdrawal that often occurs just uh, during the death and dying process. And really the hallmark of depression can be described as anhedonia, um, the inability to experience any kind of pleasure. And generally the loss of meaning is across the board as is and is complete. Now, uh, let's remember, as I mentioned earlier, that patients and caregivers may experience both preparatory grief and depression. And this is when the clinical picture becomes more complex, of course, for us clinicians. Now let's talk about complications of bereavement. Let's talk about complicated grief as a pathological grief reaction that needs to be addressed. Just to review, the uh, individual who's experiencing complicated grief is in a, uh, the mourning process is frozen or stuck. They become unable to process the pain of grief and so they continue experiencing these very distressing symptoms with no relief. There's really also an inability to accept the reality of the death. Uh, we want to be mindful of cultural differences, of course, uh, but this is a pathological reaction. So we want to normalize whenever possible, but we do not want to trivialize what is a pathological reaction with uh, very distressing feelings of separation distress, with intense longing, yearning, and pining. There may be anger and bitterness and shock and disbelief and behavioral changes. And of course, these symptoms, these manifestations can be present in normal grief as well. But in talking clinically now, uh, while in normal grief you have fluctuations, remember the fluctuations, and you have the sense as a clinician that the grieving process is moving forward. In complicated grief, you really get the sense that there's no relief, there's no movement. It's like the psyche becomes completely, has become unable to process. Um, and any, um, uh, the loss and the reality of the loss. Uh, several studies, um, no, we don't have the time to review today, but several studies have uh, really uh, indicated that complicated grief is a syndrome different from clinical depression because it's much more focused on the loss. And caregivers can experience complicated grief, so we need to monitor them for risk factors. But let me just make a note. Um, the focus on complicated grief is generally related to caregivers. So when we do pre-bereavement in hospice, we say, well, let's talk about uh, the risk for complicated grief for caregivers. Let's not forget that patients may come on hospice or may be enrolled in a palliative care program, and they may have experienced a significant loss, let's say, a couple of years prior to their admission to hospice, and they may be experiencing complicated grief at the time of admission. So um, this is not something, a pathological reaction only for caregivers. Patients with advanced illness may also already be coming onto the program experiencing complicated grief. So what are some of the risk factors 
that we need to keep in mind and we need to monitor for. The, I'm going to describe some of the risk factors identified in the literature. Certainly, relationship and attachment style are important. A high level of ambivalence in the relationship when there's love between the caregiver and the patient, but also a lot of resentment, a lot of ambivalence, a lot of unprocessed feelings and emotions can, and negative, especially if these are negative, can complicate the bereavement process for the caregiver. Also, an extremely dependent attachment style, not just being close, that's a good thing, but dependent in the way that the caregiver cannot possibly imagine the life without uh, the loved one. And again, all of this is normal, right? These feelings are normal, but we're talking about a situation where the, where the caregiver can become completely unable to function at any level. Personal vulnerability should always be uh, taken into account. Uh, a prior history of depression or anxiety disorder or psychotic disorder in caregivers, for example, should be considered the risk factors. Circumstances of the death, this is a really important one because um, we may think that because patients have enrolled in hospice that the um, death is expected. However, let's not forget that even the most highly functioning caregiver at the time of admission may experience a profound grief reaction that they're trying to manage. That may interfere with their ability to really process what is happening and really process how limited their loved one's prognosis can be. So we need to keep that into account and always remember that patients and caregivers, when they're grieving, they become unable to process information to the same degree of someone who's not grieving because really grief interferes with the ability to process uh, a lot of uh, complex information, especially if it is distressing. And the psychosocial context of the death is also very important because financial stressors uh, and other psychosocial stressors related to housing can really complicate the grieving process. So I would like to now switch gears. Uh, we've reviewed anticipatory grief. We've reviewed briefly complicated grief. And I wanted to just mention for some of you who may be familiar with the, with the DSM, some of the main changes, two main changes that have occurred in the new edition of the DSM. The DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Um, so the new edition of DSM-5 uh, contains two uh, interesting um, uh, additions and changes related to grief and bereavement. And I think this can be relevant for all the mental health professionals out there. Uh, first of all, you may know that complicated grief was included, uh, was proposed as a separate uh, diagnostic entity uh, for inclusion in the DSM-5. And the DSM-5 task force has rejected this proposal. However, they have developed a new uh, terminology, uh, persistent complex bereavement disorder, as a condition for further study. They have described clinical criteria that, however, should not be used clinically, but only for research purposes. Um, however, I would like to mention that many, uh, most clinicians in the field uh, believe that complicated grief does, grief does exist, that it is different uh, from depression, and will continue using this terminology unless something else uh, comes along. The second change is really even more relevant because it is the elimination of the bereavement exclusion criterion in the, in the diagnosis of major depression. What does that mean? According to the DSM-4, if an individual was um, acutely bereaved they, and expressed a lot of um, um, uh, depressive symptoms, they could not be diagnosed with major depression um, for two months. 
because it was believed that uh, while the individual is bereaved, so depression, this depression is normal and part of bereavement, so we shouldn't over-pathologize a grieving process. So now that bereavement exclusion criteria is being really has been eliminated, so uh, someone who uh, has uh, just experienced a loss can be diagnosed with major depression. And if there are any questions about that, we can talk more about that later. Because it's a relevant change, I think, that has created a lot of controversy in the field. So some of the psychosocial approaches that we need to, be, uh, to keep in mind and be aware uh, first of all, it all starts with supportive education, and I believe that every palliative care clinician, every hospice clinician should be able to normalize, to describe uh, the grieving process, to educate families and patients when they have questions about what grief is and how we can experience it, and really normalize what is happening. Just explaining sometimes can be extremely helpful. Counseling is, a, is an intervention that is a little bit deeper, clarifying uh, beliefs and providing that support for normal grieving. And psychotherapy is really a more in-depth uh, intervention and more structured that is very useful uh, in general to address more pathological grief reactions. And I want to mention uh, complicated grief treatment, which is nowadays probably the most effective um, evidence-based intervention for complicated grief. It was designed specifically for complicated grief. It's a manualized structured intervention of 16, uh, 16 sessions, and it contains a combination of uh, prolonged exposure and motivational interviewing elements. And uh, a very recent study this year demonstrated that it's also very effective. It actually was more effective than interpersonal therapy for uh, relieving depressive symptoms in older patients. So it's very important to keep that in mind, but all of us should be able to provide supportive education and normalization of symptoms, uh, still monitoring uh, pathological grief reactions. I would like to make a quick comment uh, just to, as we end uh, our talk on pharmacological approaches because this has been an issue that has created also uh, a lot of controversy in the field. Um, generally, um, pharmacotherapy, and I'm talking about psychotropic medication, is indicated uh, for pathological grief reactions in depression, in anxiety disorders, and complicated grief. However, the concern that many clinicians have had over the years, the concern that, for example, using antidepressants in normal grief may uh, prevent people from grieving effectively, has not been supported by evidence. So we need to keep that in mind. Uh, one of the concerns, however, that is described in the literature is uh, problematic prescribing practices, especially related to benzodiazepines. Um, psychotropic medications are generally not recommended immediately after bereavement, but there is a tendency, especially in primary care physicians, who may not be, have the expertise to differentiate between a normal grief reaction and a pathological grief reactions, to especially uh, prescribe benzodiazepines if the individual cannot sleep. And not being able to sleep is uh, normal at the beginning. Of course, if sleep uh, becomes persistently disrupted, the short-term and judicious use of uh, benzodiazepine can be indicated, but not for years. And so uh, some studies have indicated there is a concern, uh, PC, primary care physicians so may start the patient on a benzodiazepines, and then several years later, the patient has difficulty uh, 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 stopping the medication, and with all the concerns related especially to older patients that, that we are aware of. And just a couple of comments about the use of antidepressants in bereavement-related depression and complicated grief. We don't have very good studies, very small uh, samples 
what has been used and um, especially tricyclics have been used for bereavement-related depression. And the literature has indicated that um, these medications are relatively safe, moderately effective. We do know that antidepressants are mostly effective for moderate to, se to severe depression. And in complicated grief, SSRIs have been used to uh, relieve symptoms. And what has been noticed is that um, depressive symptoms generally um, improve earlier and uh, sooner uh, rather than uh, grief symptoms. But again, the studies are limited and hopefully there will be more research in the future that uh, creates uh, a kind of a broader sense of how we should operate and how uh, these medications should be utilized. And in summary, I would like to um, just uh, highlight that all of us working in palliative care and hospice really need to recognize, identify grief reactions in patients and caregivers because virtually it's not possible to fully understand and support a patient and a family, I believe, unless we really understand the experience of grief, which is so uh, prominent in, uh, in their life uh, at this time. Um, all of us should be able to provide basic supportive psychosocial education, reaching out for consults and other providers when there is a need. Uh, we want to normalize whenever possible, but always keep our assessment hat on, monitoring for the development of pathological grief reactions. And our treatment plans should be integrated, should be evidence-based, and really be designed and individually tailored to improve the quality of life of patients and families. So I would like to uh, thank you very much for your attention. And at this point, I would like to uh, open it up for questions. And we have a, a couple. We have a couple of questions. I'm going to give you also a couple of moments to gather your thoughts. And so the first question. Uh, what would you recommend if members of the same family grieve differently and this create conflict, creates conflict? Uh, well, that, this is a very, a very good question um, because we certainly uh, see that. The fact that patients and families may be part of the same family doesn't mean that they experience and express grief in the same way. Um, what I mentioned earlier, for example, there may be a patient who's very private and um, may not express a lot of affect. They may be distraught or very private about their grief. However, there may be a spouse or children who are very um, expressive in, in, in their grief and would like to be able to join with the patient and bond and, and cry and sometimes the patient may push back. And of course, this situation can be reversed because there may be um, patients who really want to talk about what's happening and they want to grieve with the, with the family and the family is pushing back because they feel overwhelmed by all this affect. So I, I think um, it's a great question because it reflects the reality of the clinical setting and I think one of the things we can do is really utilize uh, family meetings and I would say family therapy, family counseling at this point uh, to really first understand what the issue is and perhaps there could be a separate meeting with the patient and a separate meeting with the family, with the family caregivers at the beginning, kind of understanding how do they grieve and, and what are the conflicts that are uh, being brought to the forefront. And then having a family meeting, a family therapy meeting where um, 
first of all, uh, different grieving styles can be described and discussed, and I think it's very important that we do that, facilitating connection. Describing the differences in grieving styles is normal, but really we're focusing both the, both the patient and the caregiver on what can be uh, connecting them in the expression of love and mutual support. And I also would like to mention that this is the time where we can, in addition to psychotherapy, so psychological interventions, we can use integrative medicine um, approaches such as uh, music therapy, for example, which is incredibly effective in facilitating connection, really bypassing the verbal modality and bringing patients and families together um, and reconnecting uh, in, in an expression of love and mutual support. Okay, we have another question. Um, what concise tools do you use for bereavement risk? And does bereavement ever end? Well, I'm going to, uh, uh, <laughs> thank you for that question, it's a great question. I'm going to answer the second part first. Does bereavement ever end? Um, I, I don't think it does. I think uh, when we lose someone close, um, we uh, are forever changed by that loss. Uh, this is what I personally believe. We learn to live in a world that is different. Uh, we learn to live in a world without the loved one. And we adjust. We um, develop uh, other uh, parts of our personality. We adjust to that world. We learn to live with the legacy. Uh, hopefully, we're able to integrate that legacy. Uh, what may end is the um, profound, profound distress that doesn't leave you. So there may be some relief, and progressively, the moments of profound distress may become more limited. But I also want to uh, remind everyone of a term developed by Teresa Rando, one of the uh, most well-known and most wonderful, actually, clinicians and uh, practitioners in the field. And she developed the term of um, uh, upsurges of grief. Um, sudden absurdities of grief, and and so what what that means is that even many many years later after a loss, once you think you thought that you processed it and and you're relatively adjusted, uh, a smell, a sound, a situation, um, the expression on someone's face may trigger a profound uh, grief reaction, and and this. This kind of grief reaction should be normalized because it is part of uh, everyone's experience. And it's almost like a, a, a wave, you know, a really, really strong wave in the ocean and then it subsides. But just to remind us that the psyche is always really uh, very uh, um, working with and in relationship with the loss and making meaning. Making meaning of a loss, I think it's a lifetime uh, process. This is why for all of us it's so important to be really acutely aware and very sensitive to the expression of grief reactions in patients and families. And in terms of concise tools for bereavement risk, I think if um, there, there are some uh, tools that can be utilized. For example, the inventory of complicated grief um, can, can be utilized in the clinical setting. It's relatively short and you can see how, and we can you know, talk more about this, uh, that it, it's a recognized and validated tools. I think the experienced um, professional, however, can go down a list of risk factors and really look for some of the risk factors that I've highlighted. Uh, relationship, prior history, 
um, how the caregiver is actually able to imagine their lives without uh, the loved one. I think this is important, identify psychosocial, so really a full psychosocial assessment and spiritual assessment should give us, uh, the clinic, in the clinical interview, in the context of the clinical interview, should give us enough information to really discuss in teams and decide what kind of um, individualized treatment plans should be implemented. And I think we have another question. Let me. Okay. Euphoria. This is a very interesting um, question. Euphoria was listed as a symptom of grief. Can you expand on that? Definitely. Um, some uh, people may react to acute grief to the uh, uh, to the loss with. Um, what we may describe as inappropriate affect, but it's not an appropriate part of the grief reaction. They may become very, very vulnerable. They may feel elated. Um, I have actually seen this in, in the patients who um, had the sense that something was wrong with them for a long time and went from doctor to doctor looking for um, a, a diagnosis, uh, looking for validation. And then the moment uh, they may actually receive a diagnosis of serious illness, their effort and their reaction may be completely different from what you would expect. And I've been sitting sometimes in, in, uh, in the consultation room with the physician, with the oncologist who's actually delivering the bad news to the patient and is really, you know, going through uh, all the processes of uh, um, being supportive and giving a small message at the time and, and check for understanding. And the patient, you know, uh, turns to the spouse and says, I told you that that was going to, I told you that I had cancer and, you know, I'm so, uh, so happy that I'm right and really I've heard these verbalizations. And they may be elated because finally they felt validated. So it could be a euphoric, uh, a temporary euphoric reaction that really um, hides this kind of underlying uh, process of grief, which in most cases will um, come to the forefront later on. So these are fleeting, I'm not talking about a few, uh, a manic state, even though temporarily it may look like that. Because again, a grief reactions are unpredictable and people need to know that this really, it's unpredictable how people will respond. Even though they may uh, not have a strong reaction in your office, when you deliver the bad news, they may appear very composed and okay, we understand and we go home. We need to find out what happened when they go when they go home, uh, because that's really when they feel safe that they may may be able to express grief in a more um, authentic manner. Um, let me look at other questions. Okay, are there any cultural or spiritual differences in how persons grieve? Definitely. Uh, definitely, and this would be a whole uh, separate talk, and I hope that we will be able to uh, to do this in the future. Um, it all depends on how people make sense of the loss. Um, you know, when I um, provide trainings in, in, in person, I always ask uh, practitioners or clinicians, are you aware of the way you grieve? Are you aware of your own grieving style? And sometimes people say yes, sometimes people they say, well, I never thought about it. And I think this is really important because the way we grieve, I think, is profoundly affected by our community, by our family, um, by our circle of support. Um, and sometimes I ask people, think about the first meaningful loss you've experienced in your life. And I ask them to think about what kind of message did you receive from your community? 
from your culture, from your uh, spiritual community about what was the right or wrong way to grieve or how were you supported. What were the messages that you received? Is it okay, for example, for children to be present? Is it okay to express strong affect? Um, is it um, if you if you um, exhibit a lot of distress, does it uh, kind of indicate that you are not as religious as you should be, or that you are not as in touch with uh, your source of meaning and purpose that you should be? Is there judgment around how you express grief? And what is the meaning? What do people believe about what death is? I mean, this unfolds a whole different uh, uh, conceptualization and, and discourse around the meaning of death <clears throat> and what happens, if anything, after death. So that's part of the meaning-making process. And I think it's important that we are aware of the messages that we've received because sometimes the messages we've received don't necessarily are not necessarily a perfect match with who we are as people and in terms of our own personality. So sometimes I'll ask people, well, do you feel supported by the message or the grieving style that you somehow developed as a result of your family history and your cultural and spiritual religious affiliation? And sometimes you will say, well, no, I really would feel that a different reaction would, feel, would be more authentic for me. And so in that case, some of the work, the personal work, is really to see what, can, what we can shift to find a way of grieving that is more supportive of who we are. Because if we really understand and honor grief in ourselves as clinicians, I do believe that we will be more attuned to the experience of grief in patients and family members. So unfortunately, this is all the time that we have today, and it's been such a pleasure for me to be with you today. Thank you for your participation and thank you for your very insightful questions. I hope that we can, maybe this is the beginning of a dialogue. And um, I would like to remind you, <clears throat> however, that uh, the next webinar will be um, will take place on November 25th, 2014 at 12.30. And the title is Prognostication 1 improving accuracy to support care and hospice access. And it will be presented by Dr. Pauline Lesage. I also would like to uh, remind you to please fill out your webinar evaluation form because that will be very helpful for us in future plannings. And again, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your participation. And I'll see you next time. Thank you. <laughs>